Uh, we, we, we watch TV differently this, this time uh, of our lives than we maybe ever have. Uh, this time in, in the history of humanity, television has taken a turn. We, we get most of what we watch on streaming services now, like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Crave or all the myriad of other ones that have come out and tried to compete with them. Um, Television watching has changed because of that. One of the ways that they keep you watching, of course, when they make these television shows for, for a streaming service is that they try to end each episode with a cliffhanger, and that's so that when it's 11.30 at night and you're sitting there and you're looking to your loved one and you're thinking, we really should go to sleep now because tomorrow morning we have to be up early to go to work, but one of you says to the other, well, we can't stop there. Like, we have to find out what happens. We'll just watch 20 minutes of the next and then another hour, but they put another cliffhanger at the end of the next one, and next thing you know, you called in sick the next day, right? Because <laughs> you had to finish watching whatever show it was that you wanted to watch. Um, Ruth chapter 3 ends in a little, bit of a, cliff, a little bit of a cliffhanger. It's an ancient story cliffhanger, so maybe not as exciting as you, as you might think, but it does end in a cliffhanger trying to leave you for Ruth chapter four. If you've not been here for the last number of weeks, um, I'm gonna give you a recap of, of the book of Ruth. We've been doing this every week, so if you've been here every week, you're like, stop with the recaps. All right, we just wanna be hospitable and kind to the people who are kinda new to the game here. So let me tell you what the book of Ruth is about and what's gone on up to this, up to this point. Um, it starts, the camera opens on uh, Naomi, who is a Jewish woman. She's married to Elimelech, and there's no grain, there's no food in Israel at the time. And so they decide that they're going to move. And they move to Moab, and when that is said or when you read that in, in the Bible, you're supposed to shudder. Ooh, Moab, because Moab was not a nice place. The people of Moab worshipped a god who they sacrificed their children to, for example. Uh, the Moabites were often described as the enemies of Israel. They did despicable acts, all sorts of things. They were often on, very much on the other side of God's desires. And so here you have these Israelites moving to, to, moving to Moab because they have some grain there. The harvests are still going on in, in that part of the world. And so they move over to Moab, and the worst possible thing happens. Uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Ten years later, her two sons also die. They are married at the time. Neither of them have children, so Naomi has no grandchildren at all. But they're married to Orpah and to Ruth. These three women are left all alone in a world that can only be, um, you can only be provided for if you have a man around. Men are the only ones who can do the work and therefore can get paid, and you can only, that's the only way that you're going to be able to survive. So you have these three widows together, and they're trying to decide their future, and Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah, listen, ladies, you need to go back to your father's home so that your fathers can take care of you because I can't provide you anything. I'm, I'm, I'm a dead end as far as you're concerned. So go back. Orpah, in tears, says, yes, you're right. I have to go back. And so she does that. But Ruth says, no, I will not go back. I will not leave you all on, all on your own. If it costs me my life, I will stay with you until your dying breath, Ruth, uh, Naomi. So they stick together. 
They end up going back to Israel because they feel that there's more safety there. They go back to Israel and the harvest has started up a little bit more again. The grain is growing and so they, they go back to Israel and they have nothing. So the only way they can get anything is by following the harvesters after they do the harvesting and just picking up like the leftovers off the ground. They call that gleaning in those days. And Ruth is the only one who's able to do it, presumably because Naomi's an older lady at this point. And so Ruth goes out there and she's picking up some of the, some of the grain behind the harvesters. You have to understand, a Moabite woman in Israel is not going to be treated well. She's an outsider. She's the enemy. And I'm sure she's being harassed by the other ladies who are collecting that, sort of the other poor people who are collecting that, who are full Israelites. But this Boaz, this man, in whose field she just sort of wanders into, notices her. He asks about her, and he tests compassion on her, and he says to his harvest, everybody stop treating her poorly, and I want you at some points, in fact, to leave some specifically for her. As she's following behind, wherever she is, I want those people who are doing the harvesting to just occasionally throw some stuff over the side so she gets more than what she would normally get. And so... She is blessed because of this. So normally, you'd leave a day of gleaning with maybe a handful of grain. Well, she goes home at the end of the day with an entire basket full of grain. She shows up to her mother-in-law, who's des- they're destitute. She shows up with this massive basket of grain. And Naomi said, what happened? And Ruth says, well, I met a man. And what a man. And Naomi says, okay. Do you know that Boaz, she says, is is part of our family. He can actually serve the function in our community of what they call a kinsman redeemer. He can redeem us. He can actually come along and save us and take care of us. He's qualified to do it. Did you know that? Ruth's like, no. Oh, we're going to get to work. So they get to work. After a period of time, Naomi says, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go, when this guy is down harvesting at the end of the season, you're going to go down and you're going you're, you're gonna to make yourself smell really good. And I want you to lay down at this man's feet in the middle of the night, and I want you to see what happens. It's not the late mothers don't make this advice. Don't give this advice to your daughters ever, right? But it, it happens here, and she does. She goes down, and she's laying at Boaz's feet, who wakes up in the middle of the night and freaking out. What is this? Who is this? It's Ruth. And right there, on the spot, Ruth proposes marriage to him. It's on one knee, she's holding the ring. And Boaz is like... Yes, absolutely. This is, uh, thank you. But there's a problem. You see, I am a guardian redeemer for your family. I am one who can come along and can redeem your property and you and all this stuff. But there's another one who is closer to you in the family line. And I have to ask him first. And so we're left at the end of chapter three wondering, is this new guy who's being introduced into the story going to ruin everything, going to take this love story and dash it upon the rocks? She goes home, Ruth does, and tells Naomi in Ruth chapter three, verse 18, what goes on, what happened with Boaz, that he's got to go check to make sure that this other guy doesn't want to do the redeeming. And then Naomi responds, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And the story then shifts from love story to courtroom drama in chapter four. And that's what I want to look at with you for the next few minutes, all right? So we're going to tell the story, just finish the story out. 
And then I want to make three applications to the whole of the book, all right? So here's the story. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, so while Naomi is talking to Ruth and saying, don't worry about it, he's going to sort it all out. Meanwhile, Boaz, our hero, went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, this other guy who's closer to them in the family line, just as he had mentioned, this guardian redeemer, just as he came along. So Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down, and Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. So there's a little bit going on here that's at this stage. It's a little different than what we're used to. So let me explain to you what's happening and why it's happening in this particular place. Uh, you notice that it's me what's mentioned here is the town gate. So Boaz goes up to the town gate. Every town or city worth its salt in those days was surrounded by a wall. That's how you kept the intruders out. That's how you kept your things, your people safe. While you were, a lot of men would go out to work. If you wanted to keep the women and children safe, you keep them behind the wall so the intruders can't come in and kill them and take everything that is important to you. So the walls would surround the city. There's one way in, one way out. That was the town gate. It was only open during the days, oftentimes, and not even all the time then. If you needed to go out to your fields, you go through the town gate. If you needed to come back to your house, you go through the town gate. If you wanted to go to the marketplace, it was always around the town gate. So it, it is the place where everybody meets, right? It is the, it is the mill lake of, of that day, or actually, Costco of that day, right? It's the place you see everywhere. Costco, this is the Costco food court. And you see everybody that you know in your town, in your town there. It was the only place in the towns, in fact, that had any space. Most of the cities, because they didn't want to build massive walls, they had little towns, had lots and lots of houses shoved together quite a bit. And so the only place that you had room, in fact, for a marketplace or meeting places or stuff was at the town gate. And that's, that's what's going on there. There's a lot of people bustling around in those places. It was the place that you did most of your kind of legal transactions, kind of like today when we want to do something on Craigslist, we pick a popular, populated place so that the person doesn't, you know, drug, and drag us, drug us and drag us off to the woods or whatever. So that's what's going on here. He's going to go to the spot where he can find this guardian, this other guy, and where if he finds him, he can actually initiate a, a, a judicial session. He can actually get a bunch of witnesses around and they can start the proceedings to figure out who gets to do the redeeming. So he finds this guy who just happens, you notice the language there, who just happens to be coming by. That's a wink from the narrator here saying, yeah, yeah, it just was a massive coincidence. Just like Ruth going into the field of Boaz was a massive coincidence. Wink, wink. Yeah, God's involved here, bringing these people together. And when he sees him, when Boaz sees this guy coming through the gate, he says, oh, my friend. That's the language that's used here. But the, the actual Hebrew here is, is better translated, hey, Mr. So-and-so. Now, the guy's got a name. Right, these are family members. I, I imagine that most of you have not forgotten the names of your cousins recently, unless you're quite old. But I, I, the, you, the, these are family. I'm sure that Boaz knows his name, and he probably used his name, but the narrator does not include the name. So in your mind, you should be thinking, why? Hold on to that. There's an answer. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, sit over here. Then he goes and gathers 10 of the elders, you know, the important people who can make good judicial decisions. He sits them all down next to him and he starts his case. 
Here's the problem, Mr. So-and-so, says Boaz, verse three. He said to the guardian redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, okay, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belongs to our, our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm the next in line. And the guy then, in this moment, says, yes, I, I will do it. Now, there's, again, some back background to this. There are some rules. I've mentioned the language guardian, redeemer already. Here's the way it worked. That if somebody in your family got, uh, had a massive hardship of some variety, usually financial, so that the property that your family owned was in, was in peril. That somebody else was going to buy it or come in and steal, steal it somehow, or maybe you, you got in such financial difficulty you had to sell yourself and go into slavery. The responsibility of the next closest kin, the next closest family member, was to come and to redeem you or the land, to keep it in your family's name. They would be your guardian, your kinsman, or your guardian redeemer. So what, what Boaz is saying to this guy is, listen, Elimelech died, and so we have a responsibility here to come and to take care of Naomi, but the, the good news is that all of Elimelech's land is, is now for sale at a really, really cheap price. You just have to assume, you know, Care for Naomi, and you will get all of this productive land. Can you imagine if someone came to you today and said, here, would you like a whole bunch of land for a few bucks? You'd be like, yes, I will do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so Mr. So-and-so, of course, accepts it, and you say, well, well, why? What's his motivation? One of the commentators on this passage, Victor Hamilton, he said, one, one can easily imagine him smiling to himself at his good fortune for very little money. He could carry out a respected family duty and perhaps enhance his civic reputation, right? People are going to think, well, you're really committed to your family. Financially, the investment was a bargain without risk. There were no known heirs of Naomi's husband to reclaim title to the property later, and elderly Naomi was certainly unlikely to produce any. Hence, his little investment would develop into years of productive, profitable harvest and enlarge the inheritance of his heirs. How could he lose? What a deal! One of the things that you guys don't probably know about my dear African friend Ezra, who works at our church, is that Ezra is a complete deal maker. Listen, if he comes, you've been warned. If he comes to you and wants to make a deal with you, I just, just know this is going to last a while, this negotiation. He often will, will tell me about his, his exploits with TELUS. Dude, dude, I was, on the, I was on the phone with TELUS for like a month, dude. I am now getting my cable for free, you know, or like it's a dollar, one dollar, one day, whatever, it's not a dollar. It is a dollar, I promise, dude, dude, dude. You can always say, just say it over and over again. Dude, you see this car? Yeah, I see your car. Five dollars. No, Ezra, didn't cost five dollars. Dude, dude, dude. Loves to tell about his exploits. This is, this is a dude moment, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine telling your friends, you see all this land? Five bucks, right? I mean, this is this moment for, the, for this guy. Of course he's going to jump at it. Notice, though, that 
Boaz has withheld from his point of view the most important piece of information, and that is Ruth. So verse 5. You know, before you read verse 5, you need to understand, like, the acceptance, this guy's acceptance of this deal should be sinking your spirits if you love a good love story. Because Ruth and Boaz were supposed to be together, and now this guy jumps in, and all of a sudden he says, oh yeah, I'll take care of it. Oh, what? There's not going to be any kiss? There's not going to be, like, anyone on the, running to the airport? At the, what? My wife would not like this story at this point. She'd be very, very angry. But Boaz, verse 5, said, Oh, by the way, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also require, acquire Ruth the Moabite. The Moabite. The dead man's widow. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, he's appealing to a law in Israel called the Leverite marriage law. It means brother marriage law. Here's the way it worked. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. Here's the law in that day. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, so no heir, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears because of their union shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So look, if your brother dies, you have a responsibility to take his wife. If she has no kids, you have a responsibility to take his wife, make her your wife, and provide an heir for your brother so his name doesn't die out in the, in the land. That, that's the law. Now, they, they extended this beyond brothers. It was usually considered the next male, closest male family member. And so Boaz, you can imagine Boaz at this point. You know, the guys are ready to sign the document or make a public declaration. Yes, I will take the land for dude, nothing, right? <laughs> and Boaz says, oh, just a second. Actually, there's one more thing. Ruth, the Moabite... You know, Moab, ooh, she comes with it. So I don't know what you want to do about that. I mean, oh, don't do anything about it. So at this, verse 6, the guardian redeemer said, oh, well, I can't redeem it then because it might endanger my own estate. You, you redeem it. I got an idea. Boaz, you could redeem it, because I can't do it. So what, what's, what's he on about? There's a reason that he's turning this down now is, is, is basically, if he redeems the property and he redeems Ruth, and he provides the heir that he's supposed to provide, right, by, through this marriage relationship, he's only basically looking after the property until the heir is old enough to take it off his hands. So it's basically a rental agreement now. So all the investment that he's putting in the property will eventually go to this, this heir that he's supposed to provide. In the meantime, he's got to take care of Ruth and Naomi and the heir, which is going to cost him a bucket of money now. And in the long run, all the heirs that come through Ruth will split the inheritance of all his already existing family. So he's thinking dollars and the cost is going way up. And he's like, you know, what 
I mean, this sounded really great at the front end, but, but now, man, I'm out. Like my estate and my name and my, my name. You got, don't underestimate the racism here. There's a reason that Boaz points out that she's from Moab. Like my name, I don't want to be married to a Moabite and I don't want to give my inheritance. I don't want to threaten my estate like that. You do notice how different this guy is than, than Boaz, right? Because this guy's only concerned for himself and for his name and his reputation. And Boaz is only concerned about Ruth. By the way, which one of these two men, which, which one of their names do you know? Isn't that crazy? The guy who's trying to protect his name is unnamed. But if I ask you who Boaz is, you'll be like, yeah, he's a hero. Hmm. So at the Guardian, uh, sorry, at the, verse 7, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to them. This is a great idea, right? You want some land? Here's a, my shoe, right? <laughs> this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced, okay, this is the way that you made a formal declaration of a legal land arrangement in those days. This is how you did it. Because they didn't have copiers or like court reporters or anything like that. That's how you do it. You got a bunch of people together and you announced it loudly. That's what he says. Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon, his boys. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. These are the people who began the nation, right? I mean, they had a bunch of kids and 12 tribes that became the entire nation of Israel. May you be so blessed Boaz, that Ruth has kid after kid after kid, that we can say that in the future there's a Boaz nation. May you have standing in Ephrathah, that's like saying standing in the Fraser Valley, it's a region, and, and be famous in Bethlehem, like the town. Maybe you prosper in the eyes of all of us. And through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who's Tamar bore, who Tamar bore to Judah. You guys notice all the Jewish names they're blessing her with, yes? In other words, she is no longer a Moabite. Because Boaz has redeemed her, she is brought into the full communion, the full membership in the community of God. And then the final verses cover a, the, the, a whole year. So Boaz, my wife at this point, was like, oh, come on, let's, can't we have more detail? Because this is their whole marriage. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Well, what about the wedding and all the, what the bridesmaids wear? You know, like, it's only one line. But we're thankful that there's only one line in the next phrase. When, when he made love to her, the Lord enabled, enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son, and the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. 
who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, this little boy. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, yes? Ladies, would you like to have a daughter-in-law like Ruth? Yes, please. I see the elbows to the sons right now. Like, yes, get one of those. (laughs) She's so great. She loves you and is better to you than seven sons. She's given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and she cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Oh, by the way, he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of of David the king. So when I was a young, young boy, my dad used to listen on the radio to this guy named Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey used to have this thing he did on the radio. He'd tell a little story about how this man became, at the end of his story, this man became the president of the United States. And everyone would be like, what? That's amazing backstory. And then he'd finish by saying, and that's the rest of the story. And that's what's happening here at the end of this. Do you know that this story is about the grandparents of the great King David who becomes the family line of the Messiah? What a great story. (sighs) So, look, three applications. There's more, but I'll give you three so you can have lunch today. (laughs) What do we learn from from this whole book? Number one, I think we learn... To not get stuck in a moment. Don't get stuck in a moment. When you take Naomi and you, and you, and you take a snapshot of Naomi in chapter one, here's, here's what you see. You see a woman who has moved away from her family. She's moved away from her people. She's gone to Moab. Her husband dies and her two sons 10 years later die. She is left basically with nothing. It's the worst fear that many women have. That, that everything that they hold dear is gone and ripped away. And so you find in Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, she comes back to Israel and people are saying, hey, Naomi, welcome home. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Look at my life. It's deadness everywhere. You ever felt that? And she's looking outside the door of her house and trying to see if there's a future, and it's all fog. It's all... Nothing. She can't imagine how she's even going to deal with the next day, much less the next year of her life. I'm a dead woman. Leave me, Ruth. Leave me, Orpah. I'm bad news. I'm cursed by God. Call me Mara. And then... Ruth's out in the fields with Boaz and she just so happens to be taken, he, he takes notice of her and then the threshing floor and then the, whoa, well, who are you? And will marry me? And she's at the gate and there's a meeting and 
It all works out. And at the end of chapter four, what you get when you take a snapshot of Ruth chapter four, Naomi, what you get is the women. Verse 14, chapter four said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Naomi has a, has a son, the grandfather David. So why is Naomi so overwhelmed with sadness in chapter one when chapter four is on the way? And the answer is because she doesn't know chapter four is on the way. She doesn't believe chapter four is on the way. She's just stuck in a moment. You've gotten stuck in a moment before, have you not? Some of you are in a moment. You ever got stuck in chapter one? Some of us are there because of a relational challenge in our, in our lives, because we've been left behind by someone we held dear, and they've turned their back on us, and there we sit, and we wonder how we're, how we're possibly going to move forward. We have children to care for, and we have needs to be met, and there, there doesn't seem like any open windows where this door's been closed. Call me Mara, we say. Some of us are dealing with, with the death of people very near to us. And our hearts are broken. You've, you've dealt bitterly with us, Lord. Some of you, it's, just, it's a just flat disappointment. Your life was supposed to go that way. And now, now you're over there. Well, how did I get here? How hard would it have been, Lord, for you to show favor upon me? But all I'm getting is, is bitterness and sorrow. My hopes and dreams are dashed upon the rocks of your providence. And there's no hope moving forward. And there you are. We take a picture of you. Chapter one, Joe. Chapter one, Jeff. Chapter one, Sarah. There you are. The problem is, you're not reminding yourself that chapter four is on the way. Christian, chapter four is on the way. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, yes? That's a good chapter four. And he's, and he's gonna work that through. And it should have some bearing on your, on your feelings in chapter one. Don't get stuck in a moment. You don't have to get stuck in a moment. When I asked my wife to marry me, this is a story that I, I remind her of frequently. Uh, the day I asked my, my wife to marry me, I had planned to do it in a place called Bellevue Park on the east side of Seattle. Right next to Bellevue Park is a, is a ring store, like a jewelry store. And next to that is a really great mall called Bellevue Square Mall. And so uh, I said to my wife, my girlfriend at the time, hey, would you like to go to shop for rings? We had already talked about getting married, would you like to go shopping for rings? And then maybe go to the mall and we could do some shopping for clothes. And you know, coming out of my mouth, that was like, oh yes, we'll do that, because I'm not gonna offer that normally, right? So we're gonna go and do this lovely day of shopping, have a lovely lunch together and stuff. And so we set out and we started to do the ring shopping and the guy at the ring store wasn't paying any attention to us. 
And I was a little bit agitated and I wanted to leave almost as soon as we got there. There's a reason for that. I had gone into that very ring store about a week earlier and purchased the ring that was now sitting in my pocket waiting to be presented to her at Bellevue Park after we were done with the shopping and the lunch. So I want to get to Bellevue Park. And she wants to do ring shopping. And so she's frustrated with the guy and I'm not defending you know, I, I'm, I'm not defending her to the guy because he and I are kind of winking at each other because I bought it from him the other day and she's angry. Why are you doing this? How Honey, let's just go and we'll, we'll shop for some clothes. Okay, fine, because that'll, you know, I'll feel better. We'll go shop for clothes. Then we're at the clothes store and I'm like, why am I shopping for clothes when I got this ring in my pocket? Let's just get to the stupid part. And she's like, oh, she's got piles of clothes around her. Can we just leave all of this here and go to lunch? I'm hungry. Well, you said that we were going to come out here and do this. Oh, you know what? I said to her, listen, you're going to be really sorry in a little while for being mad at me. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, why don't we just go have lunch? Where are we going to have lunch? I don't know, Subway. Let's get some Subway and go to the park. I mean, we came out for Subway. What is wrong with you? It's just all the whole way. We ended up getting to the park. She sits down with her subway and she's still angry. And I get down on one knee, pow, right there, right? And she didn't, I presented the ring to her on one knee and I, I, I said, will you marry me? And she didn't answer. She still hasn't answered to this day. But all she did was, oh, starts crying. Oh, I've treated you so poorly. Yes, you have. But I didn't know. She said, I didn't know that you were doing this. Right. You didn't know. You and I get stuck in moments when things aren't going our ways all, way all the time because we, we don't remember, Christians, that the future is gloriously bright in the hands of a God who promises us there's a chapter four. And what a chapter four it'll be. I've thought about about that, my, my, you know, me asking my wife to marry me, that happened like two years almost exactly after the day that a girl who I was dating at the time, she came back from Mexico and I sat across the table at her, at her house and she dumped me. I mean, I thought she was fantastic at the time and, and I remember driving down the street just not, what, what just happened there? Feeling completely rejected. I had to pull over to the side of the street because I'm crying my eyes out. And I'm saying to God, God, call me Mara. You've been so bitter to me. How am I, I'm not going to get married for years. And I can just see God being like, oh, wait till you see chapter four. And some of you have seen chapter fours in your life. You have. And you're sitting there nodding right now going, yes, I'm so thankful chapter one happened because it got me to chapter four. But at the time, I didn't know chapter four was on the way. And some of you haven't seen chapter four come, and maybe you won't see it happen in this life, but God will bring it. And I, he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Christian, you need to hug that. You will hear me say this over and over again from this pulpit for years to come because it's all over the Bible, the providence of God and the promises of God that he will bring to fruition for you. You rest your hope on that in the middle of the Mara moments, of the chapter one moments. But can I add one piece to this? I'm a little bit fearful that some of you here don't believe in the Lord Jesus and don't follow him. And my fear for you is that you're going to apply that to you and you're going to say, yeah, God's going to work everything out in the end. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
God doesn't have a covenant relationship with you so that he is obligated to fulfill his promises. You could have that, but I want you to feel the danger you're in, non-believer. I want you to realize that you don't have, I know people tell you all the time, oh, it can only get better. Really, can it? Do you have control over the world in such a way you can make that happen? Because God does, and he promises it for those who follow him. And the only thing stopping you from being one of those is your decision to follow him. So why not follow him? Chapter four could be the result. Don't get stuck in a moment. Second, do the next kind and, and loving thing. This whole story, do the next kind and loving thing. This whole story is about a bunch of people who are really kind, being really kind and loving and self-sacrificial to each other. You know that, right? So when you go back to chapter one, what you find is Ruth self-sacrificially giving herself for the sake of Naomi. I'm not, I'm not going to go anywhere. Even if you die, I'm going to be at your side, Naomi. I should go away, yes, but it's going to cost me everything to be with you. But I'm with you. Chapter two, Boaz sees Ruth, the Moabite woman, who he should show no interest in at all and show no compassion to. Moab has never been kind to Israel, and Israel should never be kind to Moab, but he shows compassion to this undeserving woman in the fields. She collects more grain than she should. She's sent home to Naomi with a basketful of grain. He's a kind man who is doing the self-sacrificial thing in a moment when it presents itself. And then in chapter 3, uh, Ruth goes to the threshing floor and for the sake of Naomi and Boaz offers herself in, in marriage and Boaz responds by not having sex with her there but saying to her, listen, I'm gonna honor you and keep you pure until we do this right. In fact, I'm so committed to doing it right that I'm gonna actually follow through with this other guy who's closest to you as a guardian redeemer. Everything that these people do is, is honorable. They're faced with challenges and they choose always the path of self-sacrifice over the path of self-fulfillment. So if you're going to learn something from this book, you should learn that God honors self-sacrifice. He honors faithfulness in the lives of people like you and me. So what, am I, what, what kinds of specific things am I thinking about here? Well, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, the girl who, who goes off and, she, and you know, she gets pregnant and, and it's an unwanted child, and she's faced with a decision in front of her about whether or not she's going to abort the child because that seems like the way forward, and it's going to preserve my life and the things that I want to do for the future, or she's going to choose to keep that baby, even though she can't see beyond that choice. She looks down the future path there and thinks, it might ruin this, it might ruin this, I don't know. But she chooses to keep the child, throwing herself in the hands of a sovereign God. And I'm telling you, you cannot out-sacrifice God. He will honor that. I'm thinking about the business person who's got, who owes money, and he's trying to think, well, yeah, but I, I owe this money to this person, and if I pay it, it's going to mean all of these difficult things, and it's going to cause harm maybe to me personally and all these sorts of things. I mean, I'm going to keep my word, but I can't see a future. It's all misty over there. And if I don't do it, I can, I can plot, a plot a course for myself. This one is going to be self-fulfilling, but that other one of paying it is going to be self-sacrificial. And I'm telling you that God honors self-sacrifice. It will not go unnoticed. 
God might, in fact, be using your self-sacrifice to do something remarkable. He brings about kings that way and messiahs. Here's what I don't mean, though. I'm a little bit concerned that you're going to hear me wrong. I'm not saying that you do something and that God now owes you because you've done it. You and I sometimes think that. You know, I think that, I think that there are hidden cameras following me all the time. So when I pick up a piece of trash, I'm like, I'm going I'm to throw this away now. And I expect, you know, the guys with the cameras to come out, congratulations, you won a million dollars because you picked that up. You've seen those TV shows before? Some of us think that's the way it works. I'm going to do some good things for God, and he's going to reward me for these good. That's not what I'm saying here. Right? You're not going to obligate God by your goodness. You're not good enough. But what I am saying is that God takes note of faithfulness. He always takes note of faithfulness. And he will provide what you need as you're being faithful. The whole book of Philippians is essentially about that. Paul's in prison, and the Philippian church, at great sacrifice to themselves, sent him a bunch of money and a friend while he's in prison. And he, Epaphroditus, the friend, takes care of him there. And Paul responds glowingly saying, thank you so much. In, in the letter to the church in Philippi, and at the end of it, he says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You cannot outgive God, is what he's saying. Do the next kind and loving thing, whatever it is. Don't get stuck in a moment. Do the next kind and loving thing. And then finally, God works with little people in little places to achieve big results. These are not the most important people in the world. And I, I hate to tell you this, Bethlehem is not the most important place in the world at the time. It's a little village, a little hamlet where nobody good, and nobody in the time expected anything good to come from it. Uh, I, I was actually, my son was involved in a, in a baseball team last year with some folks at nor, on the North Shore, and uh, he joined their team. And so we went up there, and they asked me, where are you from? And I said, Abbasur, and one of them audibly said, ooh. <laughs> I said, Wow. So as I got to know them, I kept that in my mind. I got to know them over the weeks that we, we spent together. And one day we were in Ontario and I, I stood next to the guy who said, ooh. And I said, you know, remember you said, ooh? I said, I, I just want you to know that I grew up in Seattle and that's what we think of the North Shore, right? You guys grew up in a, but isn't this the way that it works? Everybody looks down on some other town, right? I mean, uh, Seattle looks down on Vancouver and Vancouver looks down on Abbotsford and Los Angeles looks down on Seattle and New York looks down on Los Angeles and Paris looks down on New York and... Abbotsford looks down on Chilliwack, and Chilliwack <laughs> looks down on no one. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I, I am. I really like Chilliwack, right? <laughs> this is the way there are important. If God put us in charge of changing his world, he, we, would, we would immediately say, right, let's get all the really important people together from the really important places, and the, they do important things, and we'll get them on board, and then it'll all trickle down, Right? Find the New Yorkers, find the, lost, the, the culture makers, get all those people together. They can make the difference. And yet I'm telling you, God doesn't do that. <laughs> Guys, he picks a Moabite woman and a farmer from Bethlehem. That's like, that's like Sumas. Chilliwack looks down on Sumas. That's actually... <laughs> these, are, these are nobodies from nowhere. And yet God uses these people. And this is what the Lord does over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God loves to take little unimportant people and do remarkably big things with them. So here's, here's what Ruth is about. It's about a woman, Ruth, from nowhere. She's a Moabite. She deserves nothing. She's cursed, in fact, by God. But she is redeemed by Boaz, her guardian redeemer, who includes her into the full community of the people of God, not because she's great, but because he's gracious. Does this sound familiar to you? This book is about you and me. This book is about our better Boaz, Jesus, who has taken we nothings and brought us into his kingdom. You see that, don't you? So here's the thing. If you realize that you're a nobody and that you've made all sorts of errors and things that you do don't always work out right and you tend to mess things up and you're not the first choice and blah, blah, blah. If all of that is true of you and you know it's true of you, congratulations, you qualify to be one of God's. God has grace on the humble. He opposes the proud. And that's what Ruth is about. We pray for us. Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful for our Lord Jesus, our true and better Boaz. And I, I know, Lord, uh, that he has made a way for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would take it. Those of us who are on the fence and wonder if we should follow God, there's so much to be gained by following, by accepting the, the gifts that God gives. Would you move in our hearts that we might repent of our sins and turn away from our former manner of life and receive what it is that you have to give. Commit ourselves to follow you the rest of our days on earth that we can spend the rest of eternity with you and the joy of your Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.